Hello and welcome to the Leaders Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on another cloudy day here in the capital city as once again we put the topic of leadership under the microscope. I'm your host Scott Challoner and I'm delighted to be joined on today's programme by Simon Robinson. Simon is a director at ACR, a construction consultancy business encompassing civil and structural engineering, CDM consultancy, facilities management and project management. Simon, very warm welcome to you and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us this morning. Many thanks for the invite, much appreciated. It's a real pleasure, uh, Simon, uh, having you on the uh, the air with us. And the purpose of this discussion is to really understand your take on leadership as a whole. And I think it is fair to say, isn't it, that leadership is something that's really being put to the test at the moment with the context of COVID-19 and business leaders really having to feel their way through this pandemic. Tell me, for somebody working within your industry, how has it been meeting the challenges of the last few weeks and months? Because I can imagine it's been a tremendous challenge. It has, and, and of course, it, it, it's twofold in that one, servicing our clients, and secondly, also um, running a business, yeah, and making sure that the people um, are there and included, and then are also servicing the clients. Um, we've been in a very fortunate position where um, we've not had to furlough anyone in the business, and what's happened is fifty percent have been working from the office and fifty percent working from home. Um, and that seems to have worked um, uh, very well, um, so much so that, you know, that w- we do a lot within the pharmaceutical industry and the amount of clients that are on the front line at this present moment in time have written us, you know, many letters saying that the business is key workers and uh, we, we, we can't do without them at this time. So, yeah, it, it's it's been interesting and um, at least we're managing to get through it. And it's taken a great deal of adaptability from businesses, hasn't it, to adjust, of course, to remote working, um, to obviously adjust to new safety guidelines if people have to keep going in and working on site. And it's taken an incredible effort as well from employees um, and key workers um, alike to sort of carry on doing uh, what they're doing, keep things ticking over and really go above and beyond their comfort zones to just essentially keep things going um, as they are and have you been inspired would you say by what you've seen at ACR from those closest to you Simon in the wake of this crisis? Yes it's 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 been a, a real eye-opener in that you know you thought people were committed to the business but then you realize actually I've been very fortunate that not only they're committed they've been above and beyond and it's been a real sort of Let's, we're all in this together and, you know, how do we get through this and how do we make sure that, you know, we're still here at the end and, and more so that, you know, that the business will carry on. I mean, last year we just we celebrated our 50 years um, and we just want to carry on with that and, and move the business forward. So, yes, it, it's been interesting. I mean, the thing that's been, from, from the government point of view, is the guidelines and interpreting those guidelines. And, of course, We've never had this before. This is this is news. This is something brand new, and so everyone's learning as as every day goes by. Um, so yeah, we're trying to implement ideas within our practice, and then our clients are coming to to us for ideas on the facilities management side. Say, okay, wh- how do we do this? What well, what have you learned, and how do we get people back into our offices and and start to move that that business forward? Um, but the big issue that we've had sort of client side is one major client of ours um, has the NHS contract um, for supplying PPE. And 
Um, I know there's been, there's been a big issue in the news and various other points, but from our point of view, wow, have they done an amazing job. And I know the NHS are very, very pleased with them as well. Um, the amount of PPE that they've got through the, the building that we've been managing for maintenance and, and to keep it temperature controlled and everything for all the drugs as well. Um, it, it's been a phenomenal task. It's been amazing. Mm, and it's testament to the flexibility of businesses in it to, of course, meet this challenge. And one of the real positives that will come out of this quite challenging and very tragic time is the fact that it's forcing the hand of businesses to innovate. And so for the future, we'll see much more resilient firms, won't we? And we'll see people really future proofed and ready for this new normal that we can expect. Although, as you've said, with interpreting government guidelines, no one's really too sure at this point what that new normal is going to look like. And that's also a little bit of a problem. It is, but what, what's interesting is just before COVID happened, um, we, we, of course, had Brexit and, and how long that has gone on for. But being involved very much in, in, in logistics and warehousing uh, with a lot of our clients, we were already seeing um, a demand for more warehouse space um, on the back of Brexit in that we, we, you know, especially with the NHS contracts, we need the drugs now. We can't wait for them to come across the border and into the UK, so we need to stockpile. Now with COVID on the back of that as well, it's just not the pharmaceutical. It's many of our logistics uh, clients have come forward to us and basically said, look, Simon, when, when we're getting through COVID, we need more warehousing space. We, we need to have that ability to have more stockpile on many materials, many products, many drugs. It's um, It's been a, a real eye-opener. And as you rightfully say as well, as soon as we do get through the uh, the COVID situation, Brexit is the next thing on the horizon because during the pandemic, negotiations have quietly been going on behind the scenes and remotely. And we're still no closer really to knowing as to whether or not at the end of the year, there will be a trade deal in place with the European Union. Absolutely. Absolutely. And because of that uncertainty, um, people are having to think the unthinkable. Yeah, definitely um, think outside the box. And that's why, you know, a lot of the blue chip clients that we're dealing with, um, even though even though with the crisis of COVID, um, they're trying to look ahead and, and trying to use that crystal ball uh, as best as they can. Um, and it's definitely a solution is to look for, for more storage space within the UK. It's balancing proactivity with reactivity, isn't it? Because there has to be plans in place for business. It's having to plan for certain eventualities, but also it takes a great deal of leadership to be able to adjust strategies to changing circumstances. And circumstances almost seem to change by the day sometimes and have done during this pandemic. And that's taken a great deal of flexibility from the business world as well. And that's hugely important and can't really be understated from a leadership point of view. Oh, absolutely. I, I totally agree with, with what you just said. Um, and it's going to be that flexibility and that thinking uh, that will, the businesses that do that will still be here. The businesses that have, you know, stuck their head in the sand and says, well, no, I've always done it this way and this is how it's going to be. I mean, COVID has changed many, many things. Um, and it, it, it is, it's going to be a totally different world out there. For how long? Who knows? But it's certainly going to be for a certain period, but for a, quite a period of time. Now, 
From a leadership point of view, I think one of the key things in terms of learning is essentially having a great deal of experience and crisis management. And we've already talked about some of the positives that come from COVID. Um, that's going to be one of the positives, as well as the fact that businesses are having to modernise for the uh, the future, and it will breed some form of resilience for those that do get through. Now, um, considering your experience of managing this particular crisis and also the years of experience that you had in the business well before that. If you, Simon, had to advise somebody who is maybe about to start their first day in a leadership role, what sort of advice would you give them? One thing is you you must listen to people. Yeah, I know a lot of people who, who go into a management role believe that they, they know it, um, they can solve it, but that's not what um, a leader is about, is you must listen and then take all that information and take your information also with you, your knowledge, and and put that in a way that comes out with a few options and a few possibilities that then can be discussed that you'll finally come to that final solution to go forward. And when we think about going forward, if you had to sort of chart a course over the next uh, 12 months um, as to what you envision for yourself and for ACR, what do you hope to achieve as we move through the COVID-19 pandemic during that time and then hopefully emerge from the other side and really begin to look to the long-term future, even if it is in the new normal? Well, I have to be honest, as I said at the start, we have been um, very, very fortunate. Um, Some people believe that you make your own luck and some people believe it comes along. I mean, I've worked hard and I still will continue to work hard. But um, we have already a number of clients, as I mentioned, that want more space. Um, We are extremely busy. Um, 20 uh, this year and 21 is already looking very, very buoyant for us. Um, And I think the UK definitely has a lot to offer. Um, As the Brexit talks go on, I think we're becoming more stronger in a stronger position I think Europe is starting to look quite weak. Um, And from what I see in the market and what's going on with businesses, um, I'm very confident. It's really positive to hear that there's some confidence uh, for the future uh, there, Simon, for sure. And let's hope that as we start to understand what the uh, the new normal is like, it is going to be one that business can ultimately adapt to quite seamlessly. And, you know, given how informative it's actually been having you on the uh, the programme today, I actually think it would be great from a listener's point of view at some point in the next year to have you back on the air with us just to discuss where we're at at that point in time, how ACR has continued to adapt, and maybe even discuss some of the new initiatives, um, if um, there are any that you're involved in at that point in time. Wonderful. Uh, that would be absolutely wonderful. Many, many thanks. I think that would be fantastic. And we've got to say, Simon, it's been an incredible pleasure having you on the uh, the programme today and also a really insightful experience for myself as well. And most importantly, before we do touch base again, do take care and do stay safe in the meantime, because as we both well know, we're certainly not out of the woods with COVID-19 yet and there are still a great deal of variables. Absolutely. Yeah, stay safe. That was Simon Robinson speaking, director at ACR. Coming up next on the programme today, I'll be handing over to Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with Lord David Blunkett. Lord Blunkett is an active member of the House of Lords, a former Labour MP and Secretary of State, and also the chairman of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. Despite being blind from birth, Lord Blunkett rose to prominence to become one of the most notable politicians of his generation, holding a number of senior positions in Tony Blair's cabinet and serving as the MP for his Sheffield, Brightside and Hillsborough constituency. 
for 28 years. He was elevated to the House of Lords as Baron Blunkett of Brightside and Hillsborough back in August of 2015. And I hope you enjoy listening just as much as Matthew enjoyed speaking with him. That's coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected mm-hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10000 or 25000 all, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who, who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world. And being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative. They're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced both between services and product productivity and, and uh, production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and Mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who Mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, 
uh, will be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from obviously government itself. And there's been ups and downs with the Prime Minister's uh, severe illness, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen seen the same on the international scene for Mm. all kinds of reasons, Uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, service or goods, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, um, the food chain and the like. Uh, But also, I think, in terms of seeing the the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm -hmm. But actually, I think there is a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it Mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We, We may have seen the signals elsewhere Uh, across the world and taking them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing, but as someone who's uh, had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent uh, the Scandinavian countries, 
have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and consent mm. that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right, and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear yeah. advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons, because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, the health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with, watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I 
wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy. I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, yeah. it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions, having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was part, pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. We did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university there had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would, people criticized the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You, you, can, you can sponsor reports. And this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. Shut um, these kind of things you, you can look at. But you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened, because very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack 
uh, scenario, mm-hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems. If that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels. I think, again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we Mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope. And without, uh, obviously, we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without creating even more anxiety. We can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, now, it, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be to prolonged? I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges and they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives for a variety of reasons are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the the immediate handling of the pandemic concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19 those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation, and that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action, uh, Remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as 
a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is layered in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm-hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from the second week in May on the side of the Hawks in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual, unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently, uh, the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while... Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr. Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government, and the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent uh, professional lawyer who, as Director of Public Prosecutions, led the service well, uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn Mm -hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, 
I, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made Shadow Foreign Secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the uh, the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakira has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition, more importantly, he will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing, functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways... Uh, supportable opposition as well as a government that we clearly want to do well because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty and we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role and that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them, above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good ideas to how to achieve it. Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Secure is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning uh, what's your response uh, to that report, and what does Secure need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One, which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, uh, Keir Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of us, all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakira needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince skeptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, 
there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed as it did in the 1980s and early 90s to become the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Secure has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, um, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn mm -hmm. from each other, that is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Plunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.